Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Peter Baker, one of the authors of The Divider Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. He is the chief White House correspondent at the New York Times. He's written six books. Peter, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity that promotes children's literacy. Peter Baker and his co-author and wife, Susan Glasser, argue that the way the Trump administration ended with made-up claims of voter fraud and an attack on the Capitol building was not only unthinkable, but inevitable. Their book argues that the whole effort of the Trump presidency was to pit Americans against Americans, world leaders against world leaders, and indeed members of his administration versus members of his own family, hence the name The Divider. Through your reporting, Peter, were you able to nail down exactly where Donald Trump's need to foster destructive competition between uh, how that need became part of how his brain functioned? And has he ever expressed guilt over the joy he seems to get out of the reality show that he enjoys being the center of? Yeah, it's a great question. And thank you very much for having me today. It's a great honor to be with you. I know how many, uh, you know, terrific people you've had on in the past, and I'm I'm, I'm delighted to be among them. Um, yeah, you know, th- so this is not a book about his psyche, exactly. It's about the four years he was president. But you're right to say, I think that his 70 years before coming to office are important to understand what would happen when he was in office. And you're right, I think, to point out that he takes a certain glee, a certain joy in fostering chaos and and conflict within his circle. He always has. That's been his part and parcel, part and parcel of his approach for really generations. You can say it's his father who encouraged, you know, that kind of cutthroat uh, approach to business. You could say it's Roy Cohn, who, of course, was the McCarthy era investigator who became one of Trump's most important mentors. We have a whole chapter about him in the book and sort of his influence on Trump in terms of how to play scorched earth politics and business. Um, and it's just, you know, he is not the cause of the divisions in our society, but he is sort of a manifestation of it. Like he came along at the exact moment when we as a country were already becoming increasingly tribal, increasingly polarized, and nobody uh, could exploit that or encourage that, exacerbate that more than Donald Trump. There have been many books written about the Trump administration to this point. Uh, I've read almost 20 of them, I think. Um, How did you approach this project, knowing that many of your colleagues, including several prominent ones in the press corps, were simultaneously working on their own books? Yeah, no, it's true. There are a lot of Trump books. Uh, and I've read a whole bunch myself. I, I at one point was keeping count. I think I'm at 118. Uh, and <laughs> you beat me to, by a hundred. Well, but we needed to look at them yeah, for right. source material, right? I mean, one of the things you discover in doing history is how useful people's memoirs can be. Not that they're honest in them, but at least they provide sometimes unknowingly really interesting details or anecdotes that form that they, they go unnoticed by the larger public and that can help inform a book like this. But it, it, this is a different book than everybody else's, I would say. This is the first book, rather than the 100th book, this is the first book 
that really tries to capture the full four years of his presidency, right? A lot of my incredibly good and talented colleagues and, and competitors over the years have written really smart books on this part of his presidency or that part of his presidency, this angle, maybe on COVID, maybe on the election, maybe on, on, on immigration, on various parts of his presidency, but nobody's trying to look back at the full four-year sweep of this. And I think to your point that you made, which is, is exactly our point, to understand January 6, 2021, you really have to understand January 20th, 2017, and every day in between. Married couples are known to argue about all sorts of things. <laughs> usually, usually it's dishes, laundry, dinner, and whose turn it is to do X, Y, Z, right? But um, what about arguing over writing? How does a married couple write a book and still remain married at the end of it? Yeah, that's a good question. We're pretty good on the dishes and the laundry. <laughs> yeah, right. That's the easy <laughs> stuff. I learned that. Too. That's the easy part, yeah. right? Um, I mean, look, you know, actually, you know, the, the famous story is Jimmy Carter, who wrote one book, he'd written many, many books, but one book with his wife, Rosalind, and he said it was the hardest part of their marriage. And they've now been married, I think, for, for 70 75 years, years yeah. right? Years. Exactly. It was so bad. In fact, they had to call the publisher, Peter Osnos, to come down to Atlanta to mediate between the two of them. We're lucky. We didn't have it that bad. In fact, nothing like that. My wife... Uh, and I have worked together for 22 years or more, actually 24. She was my editor at the Washington Post back when we first met. So we've been, uh, you know, our, our life has always been a mix of personal and, and, and professional all along. And I think that, uh, you know, it is uneasy. We definitely have different styles and approaches. We're different types of reporters and writers. But I think in the end, we have a shared, broad vision of this book. And that made it uh, possible. Were you writing the same sections uh, together, or were you doing separate parts of it and then marrying them at the end? Yeah. So we divided up the chapters and each of us took half of the chapters and, and, and wrote them individually. And then we swapped them basically, you know, we, you know, here's my chapter 11, where's your chapter 14. And then each of us rewrote or edited, uh, the other person's chapters. She did more editing because more was needed on the ones that I gave her, but she uh, is also, in addition to being a really good writer, she is, a, a, you know, really one of one of our 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 generation's best editors. She was editor of Politico, editor of Foreign Policy Magazine. She's really good at that. I'm not, and um, I think you know by doing it that way, the swapping made it. Even though we have different writing styles, by the end they become, you know, merged in a way. You have written several books about presidencies that were barely over, um, yeah. Clinton. Uh, Bush, your your book on the Bush administration is one of the best, um, not just about the Bush administration, but any administration out there. So thanks for writing that. And now you've done Donald Trump. Um, does it improve the book having so little time pass by because everything is still fresh? Or do you confront a risk of not having enough time to let the dust settle and for better sources to become available? Yeah, it's a real trade-off, and you're right to point that out. I mean, the lo the longer you have, obviously, the more time you have to think it through and really process and gain inf more information. And we didn't have a lot of time with this one. Days of Fire, which is the Bush and Cheney book that you mentioned, came out uh, I think four and a half years after he left office. So we had a little. I had a little. That was my book. I had a little time with that. Um, this one, we you know, comes out. 20 months after President Trump left office. The difference, though, is that that was a work of history and it was over. This we looked at as a work of history, but turns out also perhaps to be prologue, right? Because yeah. it's, it's still an active story. It's not maybe done. We had the title Trump in the White House 2017, 2021. It's possible there may be another another uh, crack at that. But the, it is good to get people right after they leave the White House because their memories are fresh their views are fresh. They're still, you know, alive and kicking and 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 sharp and and often willing to kind of litigate what happened. 
as far as the subject matter of the book, Donald Trump, um, and one of the themes is that he was able to drag even those who were skeptical over policy or of him personally into the most virulent of debates and basically carry them along for the ride. And they joined him um, in policies, even when they were concerned about those policies, family separation at the border um, maybe the most pronounced of those, even the people in charge of implementing it weren't so sure. What do you believe it says about human nature that so many were willing to serve him, even though they were uncomfortable with the impact that he was having? Yeah, it was fascinating. That was one of the through lines in all of our interviews. And we did about 300 interviews uh, with people after he left office. All this, all the new stuff that's in this book came from reporting that happened after he left office because we did, in fact, think that we didn't know the full story and it was worth to go back. It was worth going back and trying to learn what we didn't know in real time. So one of the things you discover in these interviews with, they all struggled. Other than the true, their true believers were, were happy to be there. But other than the true believers, the ones who were there because they were public spirited or because they were ambitious or because they saw it as their patriotic duty or they got a job title they would never have otherwise earned in another presidency. Whatever reason they were there, they all at some point faced that question. What's the line beyond which I'm not willing to go? I think this guy, and many of them said to themselves, I think this guy may be you know, reckless or dangerous, maybe even unethical or illegal. What do I owe him? What are the country and what do I owe myself? And they all struggle with this. And a lot of them told themselves, look, it's better that I stay because if I leave, the person who takes my place may be worse and may be more willing to go along with stuff that I consider to be unwise or illegal or what have you. And so they all told themselves that sometimes it was self-justifying, but there are, you can in fact look at the history and see that there were times it made a difference to have this person as opposed to that person in those jobs. What does that say, as you point out, about a potential second administration? Who would be left to serve him? I think that's a really important point because a lot of the things that he wanted to do in the first administration were were thwarted because the people around him talked him out of it, argue with him, slow walked it, resisted, or what have you. And he learned over time that you know to get rid of the people who weren't going to go along with them and replace them with people who were more compliant, more deferential. So I think the things that you read in this book that he wanted to do but didn't do in his first term, you should assume he'll have a clearer path to do in his second term, right? And there, there was... Yeah, there was even a question over whether a tweet is government policy. Can we take this, right. uh, let's say from the military's perspective, can we take this and is this an actual order from the commander in chief? And it turns out some of them said, no, this is not an official policy. We need to go through an actual process. That's right. Exactly. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Joe Dunford, said this is not an order just because you see it on Twitter. You have to go through a process. Who knows what that would be like in the second term? Remember, he just told us that he can declassify things through mental telepathy. So who knows what kind of process there'll be in a second term if he has one. And, and you know, one of the national security officials who talked to us, who was in the Oval Office for, with him an awful lot, compared him to the Velociraptor from Jurassic Park. And you remember the scene where the kids are hiding in the kitchen and there's a big industrial door between them and the dinosaur. Maybe they're safe, except that the Velociraptor has learned, learned how to open the handle of the door. And that's this frightening moment in the movie. And this national security official, he used that analogy with us meant that Trump was unable to do a lot of things he wanted to do that may have been problematic in the first term because he didn't know how to work the levers of government. And if he's there for a second term, he's have a lot better sense of how to do that. I am having the same flashbacks, the uncomfortable flashbacks that I had when I was reading your book. And you mentioned <laughs> that scene 
And uh, the, the same way I'm reacting then is how I'm reacting as you're saying it now. I still get the goosebumps thinking about that velociraptor opening the door. <laughs> um, Trump calls it the Russia hoax. Um, you argue, you say that Dan Coats wondered what Putin had on him straight up, said, what does this guy have on Trump to make him act this way? Um, especially after the president said he wasn't sure if his own intelligence agencies were correct that Putin tried to help him in 2016. And that was this big moment in the book where a lot changed um, when people realized his his approach towards um, Vladimir Putin um, from your reporting. How close have you gotten to an answer as to why Donald Trump almost never criticized Vladimir Putin? Yeah, it's a great question. It is the is, is the enduring question, and I think it's one that will be quite a question for years to come. We'll see history uh, books written years and, and and maybe decades from now that try to also grapple with this question because we don't have a concrete answer. Obviously, Robert Mueller told us there was no criminal conspiracy, but that doesn't really explain why Trump was so admiring and affectionate towards Putin. And you're right, Dan Coates, for, for your listeners who may not remember who he was, he was the Trump-appointed Director of National Intelligence, a former Republican senator and ambassador, former chief of staff to Dan Quayle, no liberal, no deep state you know, bureaucrat. Uh, but he watched that Helsinki summit, and you're right, came away thinking, oh my gosh, maybe he does. That is, maybe Putin does have something on Trump. Imagine that, this guy who has access to all the nation's secrets, he knows all of the intelligence out there, and he is not sure whether the president of the United States has been compromised in some way by Russia. That's an extraordinary thing. And it really was this mystery. And I think people came up with two theories that were most prominent in our interviews. One from people who worked for him on the national security side. Most of them, a lot of them said, look, they just think he really has a thing for strong men. Okay. When you say strong men, because that's the way his father taught him. You, you appreciate strength, but also strong men in the sort of autocrat sense, right? Who did he like the most? Erdogan, Kim Jong-un, Xi Jinping. He called uh, Sisi from Egypt, my favorite dictator. Um, you know, and Putin is the ultimate strongman. And so he had this admi admiration for him that went beyond what any other president would be like. The other theory of the case comes from people like Michael Cohen, his former lawyer and fixer who broke with him and went to prison. He said that it's money. That for Trump, it's always about money, that he always wanted a tower in Moscow. He'd been trying to get a tower there since 1987, that a lot of money came to the Trump organization when they couldn't get funding from American banks, thanks to the Russians. How do we know that? His own sons told us that at the time. And so that, you know, his fixation on Putin is really all about um, a market that he would like to, to enter and, and, and all about uh, money, both past and present and future. Uh, he argues, I realize you're a reporter, not necessarily a shaman. Um, he <laughs> argues that Ukraine would not have been invaded had he still been president. Um, is there any way to gauge whether they're sort of um, they're sort of uh, um, they're they're under the table footsie between Trump and Putin would have had an impact on a policy that Putin clearly was interested in pursuing to a great degree. Yeah, it's a good question. We can't obviously know for sure a counterfactual, but it is fair to say that Trump didn't give him any grief for having taken parts of Ukraine already, right? He told the public that it didn't really matter to him whether Crimea uh, had been taken from Ukraine by Russia through force. He said, well, actually, they kind of like being part of Russia. He justified Russia's previous seizure of Ukrainian territory. So it's possible that Putin would have felt that he had a part blanche to do it. It's also possible he would have felt he didn't need to do it because he had Trump already in his corner and Ukraine was therefore never going to join NATO. 
Look what Trump almost did. He almost took us out of NATO. He came closer to pulling the United States out of NATO than anybody really knew at the time, we've discovered. And imagine if that had happened. Imagine if the United States were not part of NATO and Russia had invaded Ukraine. My goodness, what a difference that would be. The reason NATO has come back together again is because of Vladimir Putin. It's been He's given them a mission again that they didn't have before. But it, Donald Trump came very close to breaking up the alliance. He has argued that his brashness and willingness to say the previously unsayable North Korea would be met with fire and fury, calling him little rocket man, uh, Kim Jong-un, little rocket man. He said that 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 technique was enough to keep the world at bay, that the eggheads have made a mess of this world by being too careful. Were you able to get a sense from your reporting that this technique has been validated by the apolitical members of our government? Yeah, that's a good question. Looks at the madman theory of government that Richard Nixon once uh, espoused himself. He told Kissinger, his secretary of state, to go tell other foreign counterparts that, well, Nixon is kind of crazy. You know, you never know what he might do, da, 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 da. And to use that as a lever for getting what he wanted diplomatically. And I think that's at least a, you know, theory, it's at least a theoretically valid idea if it was the purpose. But Nixon actually wasn't a madman. He actually knew what he was doing diplomatically, and it was meant to be a technique. With Trump, it's not so clear. But I think that it is fair that foreign leaders were not sure what he would do, and that unpredictability was uh, a determinant in how they approached him. They they approached him with some caution because they were worried about some volatile, erratic uh, motion on his part. But so was his own staff. When he talked about fire and fury and he talked about Little Rocket Man, it was his own chief of staff, John Kelly, retired four-star Marine general, no shrinking violet, who was worried that Trump was going to stumble the country into a nuclear war. He thought that it was rash and reckless to be using that kind of language. And he, in fact, pushed Trump to do the diplomacy that he later did, where he had a, quote, love affair, unquote, with Kim Jong-un. And while a lot of people thought that was pretty you know, uh, dangerous in his own right. People like John Kelly thought at least it was better than, than than stumbling into a war we don't want to fight. The episode with Chris Christie potentially becoming chief of staff, I thought that revealed a lot about how the White House worked under Trump. And you explain a lot in your book about the day-to-day operations, which you, which you argue um, shows, reveals a lot about not only Donald Trump, the man, but about what got done and what didn't get done in terms of American policy. So I want to look at a couple of the stipulations that Chris Christie tried to give Donald Trump um, Mm -hmm. if he were to take the chief of staff staff job and that Trump ultimately said yes to all of them, but no to one of them. So he said he wanted to manage the staff with the exception of Jared and Ivanka. The president would determine their role, but the chief of staff needs to be fully informed on their activities. Trump said he was okay with that. he said that all disputes and disagreement between the chief of staff and the president were to be de- were to be settled in private. No public statements of dissatisfaction or criticism. The president even agreed to that, um, <laughs> which is some, one of his main, as you put it, levers of power. Um, and then he wanted an attorney paid for by the RNC to advise him on various issues. Uh, Donald Trump said no problem. But the president balked at this one. The chief of staff controls his public appearances with assumption being that the chief of staff is behind the scenes player and not a TV star. And that was a bridge too far for Donald Trump. Why? (laughs) Exactly right. Because he wants people to be on TV defending him and attacking his opponents. That was the way he measured the value of a lot of his staff members if they were out there fighting the fight for him. Now, that didn't mean there wasn't some risk with that. The ones who went out there to fight the fight for him and appear on television often risk 
uh, going too far, not because they went too far in attacking opponents, but be going too far and getting too much of a star halo around them. The, the Trump was very jealous if anybody else was seen as any kind of a celebrity and you know profiting from his uh, his star power, if you will. So that's how, of course, Steve Bannon uh, uh, fell from grace. That's how others did as well. But yeah, he wanted Chris Christie to to, to go out there and be on the Sunday shows and and argue for him, fight for him. And he was always mad that the the White House staff failed, in his view, to put enough people out there who were on his side. What was his biggest misconception about the power a president could wield? He thought the power was absolute. That's the word he liked. Absolute. He said it a number of times. Article two gives me absolute power, the absolute right to do this or that or the other thing. And anybody who reads Article 2 of the Constitution understands that, in fact, very few things are absolute in the Constitution. And the president shares power with the other two branches in various ways. He he would say, I have an Article 2. I mean, I have an Article Article 2, right, as if it was a magic wand and he got to do whatever he wanted. Look, you know, he's the first guy who came to the presidency without a single day in public office or the military. So he had never experienced that in his his experience was in a family business, the Trump organization that had no shareholders, that had no board, that had nobody to tell him what to do other than himself. And that's what he thought he could do from the Oval Office. I can simply issue diktats the way I did in Trump Tower, but it doesn't work that way. Government is different than that. Uh, and the military pushed back significantly on a number of things. And he said, why can't I mean, this was one of the quotes that made news um, from your book, which is why can't you be more like the German generals uh, for Hitler? And the response was, you know, they tried to kill him, right? (laughs) He didn't know that, of course. He's not much of a student of history, but it didn't make a difference. His idea of what the Nazi generals were like was the most important revealing thing about it, right? That he believed that the American uh, military was supposed to be his praetorian guard. And that was his personal instrument of power, not an apolitical, uh, you know, force for the American society. At the beginning of 2020, it's easy to forget he was in relatively good shape for re-election. Uh, the stock market was in good shape. The economy was okay um, for you know for some people at least. Uh, the first impeachment had failed. Um, he was riding high from that, and no one had ever heard of COVID. Um, what, of course, that all changed. What do his advisors and others close to him say he should have done differently to respond to COVID, the social justice march- marches, and then the prospect of facing Joe Biden that would have given, given him a better chance to win re-election? Yeah, you're, I think you're totally right about that. In fact, he emerged from the impeachment trial not only not chastened, but emboldened. He felt like uh, having one acquittal meant that he had the wherewithal, the authority, the the mandate to do what he wanted, including purging his own administration. And he did. He had he he reached forty nine percent in the Gallup poll. That's the highest he got in his entire presidency. So he did look like he was at least in a decent position for reelection. And then, as you say, COVID comes along, and basically, what the advisors would tell you. I mean, there are some, again, there's some true believers who would disagree with this, but what a lot of the advisors would tell you is he just never took it seriously enough. And among the people who think he didn't take COVID seriously enough, it turns out, was Melania Trump. She was flying with him back from India at the very beginning of the pandemic. And she told him, according to an account she gave to Chris Christie, you're blowing this, she said to him. You're not taking it seriously enough. And he brushed her off. And so she called Chris Christie, in fact, and, and asked Chris Christie, to talk to her husband, to get through to him, to make him make him understand how important and serious this was. But he never really did. I mean, from time to time he did, but then he would quickly flip back and forth between, you know, taking serious measures and then undercutting the very measures he had just approved 24 hours later. It's the one challenge he met, COVID, that wasn't going to be tweeted away. 
It couldn't be intimidated. It couldn't be bullied. It couldn't be overwhelmed with a rally and all that. The, all of the tools that that had been useful for Donald Trump in in being successful as a politician and president were were irrelevant to a pandemic. I have uh, had you've had probably hundreds of interactions with Donald Trump. I have had one. Um, he was president of the United States visiting Florida during the height of the first COVID wave. And as a reporter working for a station in Tampa, I went uh, to the press conference or to the roundtable he had, and I asked a question. And my question essentially was, um, you know, how difficult is it for you to see the people, the numbers of people who are dying here in Florida every day? And he said, um, essentially, I hate to see it anywhere. But we have to open. We have to, you know, do all the rest, all the things that you're familiar with. Um, did he ever have reflections in less public settings about the numbers of deaths that were happening, not just in Florida but nationwide? Very rarely, very rarely. That's out of his comfort zone. Empathy and compassion are not his strengths, right? That's not how he got to become president. It's not how he acted as president. He obviously felt bad when one of his real estate friends in New York died of COVID. Uh, but he, yeah, he really said he didn't want to go out like him, I think he said, right? He didn't yeah. want to go out like him. Exactly yeah. right. And there were moments when he was clearly frightened personally, uh, when he got it himself in October of 2020. But he rarely found a way to express that to the public. He rarely found a way to be that leader that Americans expect in a time of crisis who can empathize with what they're going through. And I think that his the question about how much to lock up, how much not, it's a tough question. There are real arguments on both sides there, but he never took that one side seriously and never gave the impression they took it seriously. Fact checkers have said that uh, there were something like 30,000 mistruths or lies or false statements that the president made during his four years in office, easily a record. Uh, my question is simple. Does he believe the things he says um, or is this part of a technique? Your question is simple. The answer is not right, and this was, <laughs> <laughs> and this was a constant source of debate among his advisors. There were those who thought that he knew everything he said that was false was a lie. He knew he was lying, and it didn't matter to him. And there were those who thought that he managed in his own head to convince himself of this stuff. That he lives in this sort of reality bending world where if he says it enough times, it's true. And they're so they were so taken by this that his chief of staff, John Kelly, the second chief of staff, actually went out and secretly bought a book about Donald Trump's mental health in order to try to understand him. It was called the, the dangerous uh, uh, the dangerous story of- By um, his niece or something? Yeah, no, no, that's not even, that was before that. This was by 27 mental health professionals oh. basically diagnosed from afar a president who they think is a nihilist and has all sorts of other pathologies and so forth. And, you know, obviously Kelly didn't tell the public this, but privately he told people that this book was actually really helpful to him in trying to understand Trump because otherwise he was so inexplicable. I believe you were at home on January 6th. Um, so I have two questions. One is, did you know you were going to write this book before that happened? Um, because you say it was inevitable looking back, right? So did that day say, we've got to write this book to you? And then just give us your experience of watching it and and what you did once the obvious need to start reporting happened. Yeah. My plan was to go up to the Capitol that day. I was about to leave and my boss called me and asked me to write something first before I left. And by the time I finished writing, the attack had begun. It was too late to to, to go up there physically, um, which I suppose is good, but for a reporter is bad because you always want to be there on the scene. But we watched on TV like everybody else. And and my wife, even much more than me, had said, you know, this kind of thing was going to be possible. 
And as soon as she saw it happening, she said, you know, this is it. This is exactly what we've been talking about. So she knew or she had a sense that this was a possibility. Our, we had talked about a book. We had a book in mind prior to that that would have been based on the first impeachment. We originally sort of thought that might be a way of uh, looking back. But obviously, once January 6th happened and once COVID happened, truthfully, and George Floyd and, and all of that, the book had to be something different. So we didn't really get started until after the second impeachment trial. At that, time, at that time, we decided to go big and try to you know do the whole four-year story. As January 6th is happening as a reporter in this very prominent position that you have, what do you start doing? Are you starting to just call anybody who might be in the Capitol building to find out what's going on, members of Congress, uh, members of the Senate? Um, or were you just, was it simply paralyzing to have this going on and you just had to watch on TV? Well, it, it was it was, it was was terrifying and horrifying. We've spent a lot of time up on the Hill ourselves. My wife was started her career as a congressional reporter for Roll Call newspaper, which is a newspaper that's about Capitol Hill. So to watch it happening was was really, it was personal too. It wasn't just, you know, a big news event. And we knew a lot of the people up there. We do have friends who work up there, both reporters and, and people who are in Congress and both parties and all of that. So yeah, we were calling and texting and trying to figure out what was going on. And, and it was up to me. We had reporters up there who were going to do the news part of the story. And my my assignment that day was to do something more analytical, you know, and I think uh, I think my lead that day was something like, so this is the way it ends. You know, in other words, this is how this four year presidency, which should challenge all the norms, burst through all the 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 the, 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 the limits and lines. Uh, was going to climax. It was going to climax in a day of violence and not just violence, but violence intended to overturn an election and stop the transfer of power. It's just unthinkable. We've never had anything like that in American history, not not orchestrated by an American sitting president. Um, I want to go uh, beyond the book here and ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. Um, you may have to pull back some of the the cobwebs that have built up over your <laughs> decades doing this. But my question is, my first one is, what was the first question you ever asked a president and what was the response? What was the, wow, huh? That's a good question. The first president I covered was Bill Clinton. And I came on to the beat in July or August of 1996 when he was running for reelection. And I remember being on Air Force One with him doing a trip to Florida I don't remember my question to him. I remember what he was talking with us about. And it was off the record at the time, but I don't think it matters very much. But he was telling some story that I don't remember. It involved a raccoon and a tree and a dog. And it was a very, you know, down home Ozark, Arkansas story. And his voice had taken a very deep Southern twang to it as he told the story. And I don't even remember what the point was, but it was (laughs) it was such an old. I see why it was off the record. Yeah, it was such a, there was like a, there was a curse word in there somewhere, if I remember correctly. And it was just sort of this, you know, Southern banter, right, that he could do. I mean, Clinton was so interesting that way, right? Rhodes Scholar, super smart, but he also played the good old boy when it suited his needs. And and that was sort of like an interesting window into him the first uh, time I had encountered him up close like that. People in the media often criticize Donald Trump for the way he treated the media, yet Based on your memory and your experiences, have we ever seen a president so accessible to the daily Q&A that Donald Trump would provide? No, never. Not in modern times. That's for sure. He was uh, he obviously had a love hate relationship with the media. Um, but from our point of view, you're right. He talked to us all the time. That was actually from our point of view, obviously a good thing. Not only did he talk to us all the time, he was also pretty transparent. You know, in other words, he didn't try to pretend that he had some other motivation than the one he really had. If he wanted to 
politicize the Justice Department, have them go after his enemies and protect his friends. He basically said that. He wasn't trying to pretend I have the greater good in mind. He was very open about his, his motivations and the way he approached things. In fact, he was once asked by Leslie Stahl, you know, why do you attack the media? He says, because that way I discredit you guys. And when you write something I don't like, they won't believe you. He's very open about his, you know, his his methods and his thinking about these things. And I think that, uh, you know, one time I was with him in Florida. No, actually it was in, uh, on the way to Florida, we stopped in Atlanta to go to the CDC at the beginning of the pandemic. And he says, you know, we're talking about should a cruise ship be allowed to dock that has people on it who have COVID. He says, I don't want them to dock because I'll make my numbers look bad. I mean, he was very open about stuff like that. That may be the way other presidents think or other politicians think, but they realize you're not supposed to say that out loud at the very least. And he never stopped saying that out loud. But I was the other thing I would say about him in the press is obviously other presidents hated the press too. It's not he was not unique in that way. Every president I've covered was mad at us right. at some point or another. But what he did was different. He didn't just criticize the press or criticize a reporter or a story. He said he used terms like enemies of the people and fake news. To which is a stop. By the way, the enemies of people have Stalinist phrase used to send people to the gulag. He used those phrases to demean the very idea of an independent and free media, and that I think is a more consequential and corrosive thing. What's something people don't know about Air Force One? <laughs> um, it's it's uh, that's a good. It does not have an escape pod. Contrary, <laughs> like in the movie, right? The Harrison Ford movie. Right. Uh, when when the Harrison <laughs> when the Harrison Ford movie came out, which I love by the way, and I still watch every year. Um, it it uh, I wrote a piece for our style section with the Washington Post. I wrote a piece for the style section about you know real life versus the movie Air Force One, and I wrote there is no escape pod. And the executive editor of the entire paper came over to me and said, "Now, are you sure? Maybe you just don't see it. Maybe you just don't know that it's there." He was really quite skeptical of this. I'm like, "No, there's no escape pod there. You, you, you it's just not feasible to do that." And <laughs> you know, you see something in the plane, like you know, bolts or something. That's got to be, be it, right? It has to be, you know. So there's no escape pod there, but it's a nice plane. And every president I, uh, has, who's ever uh, had it, uh, that's the one thing they always talk about missing when they leave office. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I miss it too, and I've never even had it. So there you go. Um, the, there's a debate that the Trump administration made more urgent, which is whether it's okay for a reporter to sit on a big story and hold it for a book because it could help them profit in the future. How did you weigh those concerns as you decided what to report day of and what to um, hold for the book? Right. Well, what, one thing I first of all say is everything that's new in our book was from reporting done after he left office. So this it's not the case that we held things back when people needed to know them before the election. They knew everything we knew before the election. Everything I could break, I tried to break as fast as I could, just as my wife did when he was in office. The second thing I would say is if we learn anything in the in the process of writing a book that was urgent, that had to be out right away because it was incredibly timely, we would just report on the paper. We, we wouldn't wait. Uh, if it had to be out because there was an urgency to it, of course we would. The third thing I would say is, you know, the, there's a value to a book, which is another form of journalism, right? Even when I'm writing for the paper, I don't write what I learned the second I learn it. I have to do other reporting and I might not do that story for the paper for a day or a week or a month. I might take more time to understand the issue more thoroughly. So there's no difference between that and a book. It's a book, which is a longer time frame and a longer piece of work. But I would say a, the value of a book is that you could put things in a larger context that you can't do with a newspaper article. And that's why it's still important. The, the books aren't things of no value. In fact, they have great value and they're going to last longer than a single newspaper article. We want books on the history shelves 10 years from now and 20 years from now that try to make sense of this whole thing. So I know that people are frustrated about books, but the truth is if I had written, my wife and I had written some of the things that are in the book, let's say six months ago in the newspaper, 
it wouldn't have changed anything. It hasn't changed anything since the book came out. It's not like suddenly the book came out and everybody's like, oh my gosh, the world has changed. <laughs> it hasn't. It's, it's added to our knowledge. I think it's important to, to record for history and to bear witness, but it's not like the world changed because of these stories. It wouldn't have changed six, six months ago. If you could have followed any president in history every day of their administration and written a book like this or Days of Fire, or Days of Fire, yeah, right, Days of Fire, on um, that president, which president would it be? Oh my gosh. I mean, the problem is it's the cliches, right? You'd have to say Lincoln and FDR because they, you know, they're presence through these very existential moments in our in our history. But I think just for fun and for for like just the quality of the of the story, I, Teddy Roosevelt's hard to beat. I mean, he's such an interesting character. Uh, and I would just love to have seen him up close and uh, to see what made him tick and how he uh how he operated. How much time do you spend worrying about the future of newspapers in America? I spend a lot of time worrying about that. Fortunately, it's not my job to to solve the problem. I'm just a reporter. Uh, we have editors who are paid. I know how you feel. <laughs> but I, I worry about that. I worry less about the New York Times because I think right now that the Times is in pretty good shape. Um, we've, you know, we're we have more readers and 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 more revenue and we've ever had before, more reporters than we've ever had before. We're at this point a pretty high high point, even though the president, former president, still likes to say the failing New York Times. We're the opposite of that. <laughs> What I worry about are the papers around the country that can't afford to do what we do, yeah. that are especially in big cities like like Tampa and like Chicago and, you know, Texas and all these places where it's hard to do local journalism and it's expensive to do local journalism and newspapers have retreated from that. And I think that, you know, that's not good for democracy. It's not good that a city councils and school boards and state legislatures don't have people watching them and reporting on what they're doing. And that's what worries me the most. There will undoubtedly be more books about Donald Trump. Um, what still don't we know? What sources are still out there that we still need to find and still need to be reported on? I think there's so much still that we don't know. You know, I, I, I've come to learn in covering the White House that at the time we maybe know ten or twenty percent of what's going on. You know, the reporters and what we can unearth. And when we do these books afterwards, I think maybe we get up to 30, 40, maybe fifty percent. But there's still so much we learn through archivals. Uh, releases that come decades later through memoirs that ultimately come later through people who finally talk, who never did talk. There's a lot of people who still haven't talked out of this White House. And there's a lot of people who haven't talked honestly, even though some of those who have written memoirs have written memoirs that in some cases are deeply dishonest. Um, are you willing to say who has I don't think, to talk to? Yeah, no, it no I don't help. think I'm going to go into that at this point, but yeah. you, you know who they are. I, right. think it's, right. I guess it's not that tough to figure out. It's not um, that hard to figure out. Uh, dare I ask, um, don't throw me out of the room here. Is there going to be a book on Biden um, from Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, or have you decided what is going to be next in your book world? Yeah. <laughs> don't throw me out. I swear. I'm not going to throw you out, but we're still trying to sell this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, um, I don't know for sure. I cover uh, President Biden and I have written a book about every other president I've covered. So it's possible. Uh, it's possible there'll be another Trump term. You know, what What one of our reviewers wrote, he said he liked the book, which is very nice. And he says he just hopes there's not a sequel. Um, and it's, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. So I think we'll we'll take it one day at a time. What's your, what's the feeling like knowing it's out in the world now and it can't be changed, it can't be updated, it's sitting right there in people's hands. How does that change your attachment to a book? Well, as a journalist, actually, the fact that you can't continue to update, we've gotten so used to the web and the ability to update stories or make corrections or fixes if we've gotten things wrong or if the you know we want to add things to it, we learn. 
this is a permanent thing. You really can't change it. Now we do have eBooks. And so in that sense, you still can make small fixes that, uh, you know, if you discover things you made, you got wrong. Um, but yeah, it's good. I, you know, I, I feel proud of it. I think that we have added something I hope to the public knowledge. I think that the the thing that will mean most to me is if people find it useful 10 years from now, not how they look at it today even, but how they find it in the future. Does it hold up over time? And we don't know that. We won't know for, for a long time, but I hope so. That was the goal. Well, I will say it's a really excellent book. Uh, I'm about halfway through and it's as good as any book I've read, if not better. And so uh, definitely thanks to Susan also, who uh, you spoke for here today. Um, Peter Baker, the author of The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation. Thanks. Check out the book. Check out his Twitter feed at Peter Baker NYT. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks.